Hey, strangers. Welcome to another episode of The Strange Sessions. As always, I'm Krista. With me is Kurt. We're coming to you live from Skype today. Kurt, yep. how are you doing? I'm hanging in there. Uh, yeah, I'll just mention it briefly. I had to put Narnia to sleep this week, so it's been a really like rough week. So yeah. again, I apologize for the uh, episode because I feel like it might not be the best because obviously I couldn't uh, focus really well. Sure. But, uh, so yeah, it's just been a long, rough week. And you yeah. and I were talking before we started recording that now my plan is like, we have, st- the kids have spring break the week after this. So now I want to start like just kind of moving some stuff around in the apartment and doing a really good cleaning. And, uh, you know, like I want to move my bookshelf to where her food dish and, and water were. And I want to start like getting like paranormal books to like put on my bookshelf. I went to the, we did. I, did you ever go to the book nook here in Manitowoc with, with I don't me? Think so. It's like a person's house, but every wall in the house is a bookshelf. Like the oh, base, the basement, like a dream. Uh, the, the bathroom is kind of hidden behind a, a bookshelf that you pull open. It's like all used books. It's like one of my favorite places. Sometime when you come up here, we'll have to go there. Yeah. But I went there the other day and picked up like a couple old seventies paranormal books. Nice. An interesting one about, I think it's from might be from the eighties about getting EVP cool. with with an old tape recorder. So that's what I want to oh, kind of wow. do. Yeah, nice. that's what I want to do. But Start building your little library. Your yeah, library. yeah. Cool. But we decided to do this kind of Skype because a I had such a bad week and I just kind of don't want to do anything this weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the only thing I'm going to do is right after this I'm going to go grocery shopping and then maybe this afternoon our museum here in town our Rar west museum has for this month they're displaying a bunch of the schools the school kids artwork oh cool oh that'd be neat yeah and a lot of the uh my kids have artwork in there so i kind of want to go see that and the second reason we're kind of doing it on skype is because we got hammered by a snowstorm yesterday you guys Mm -hmm. got it worse than we did i mean you guys had yeah your power went out (laughs) so yeah it went out from four to seven and then it was on for about an hour and then it was out again until like one o'clock <laughs> it yeah. was a lot yeah. yeah there are so many trees and limbs down around here and we're supposed to get another three to five inches tonight so. yeah so and i mean the roads are good right now, yeah, they're but, fine it, now. but it's just like yesterday we're like yeah skype is definitely the right call yeah. you know when the snow was coming down so the next time we're together we'll be in person yep. uh That's i know what i know what the topic of that episode will be i already started working on that one actually That's Wait, so- that will that's a that weird one. That will be when we're recording the next book club yes. Um, episode yes. for the Lost Causes of Bleak Creek. So yes. if you're listening and you're part of the book club, please have your feedback to us by the 24th. Yes, and our next book club book I decided is going to be Just After Sunset. That is a Stephen King book of short stories. Sweet. So it's got one in there that I absolutely love. Uh, it's 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 good. Like there's a good mixture of of – like typical Stephen King and then like non-typical Stephen King. So that will be the next book. And, okay. but yeah, I think, cool. 
I think that's kind of it. It kind of sucks that we're not together in person, that we can't open stuff or taste test stuff. I know. There's no tests, no gifts. Well, we probably have packages we need to open. We do have, yeah. There's, there's, yep, there's, you have packages, and I think I might have gotten a couple things this week, but next time together, we'll be in person. Yep. And like I said, the next episode is kind of the topic's a little weird, so I'm, I'm kind of diving into that. It's uh, it's very John Teeter-esque, if oh, our cool. listeners remember our John Teeter story. Time travel? Yeah, so I'm kind of working on that one. And was again, John Teeter a Corey topic? Yeah, that was Corey's, I think Corey's okay. first episode. I think that was the first nice. episode. But Aaron is still listening, and he definitely wants to be on. Yeah. But I want to give shout-outs before I forget. And you want to say, if you don't want to listen to this, Kurt will posted in the show notes oh yeah sorry i forgot if you're not into this first this usually takes us 20 minutes but it won't today because there's no taste test but if you just want to get to the topics shirts shirt kurt <laughs> i go by sh- i go by shirt sometimes shirt, yeah he's gonna post the timestamp of the actual topic start in the show notes hit pause check it out fast forward we're cool with that cool uh i just we only had really one one new listener or new stranger since last time and that is crystal williams demidrios which i think is such a cool name so thank you crystal for joining yeah we haven't had a whole lot of new strangers lately but and then i always think about going and like kind of promoting us on some reddit a subreddit or something but then i just decide not to (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah people will find us if they're meant to find us that's the way we look at it yeah Uh, but i also want to give another shout out to my student oliver who who listens faithfully and loves the loves the podcast and my other students if you if you are listening to this right now come up to me at school and say mr k i heard you this last episode would you please give me a shout out in the next episode because it's so weird that sometimes like We've been having pack time, which is their recess inside lately because the weather's been so Mm. cruddy. And it's weird when I'm in the classroom and all of a sudden I can hear my voice coming from somewhere. And I look (laughs) and there's like two or three of them gathered around their Chromebooks listening to an episode. So it is. It's awesome. And Linda, Linda's been listening. She said she tried listening to another couple other podcasts and she said she just gets so annoyed because, you know, like the beginning, like. People used to not like our – you kind of start off not liking our beginning section where we just banter, but she said some other ones are a million times worse than ours, you know, where you're just waiting oh, yeah. for them to get to something and they just don't. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of whether us too. Whether chemistry is bad or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I like I said, I've tried to listen to some that would be really good, except it sounds like it was recorded off their phone across the room from where they were sitting. <laughs> But, we at least have that figured out for the most part, right? For the most part. Um, do we have anything I'm else? I'm really enjoying uh, uh, the Haunted Objects podcast. I am too. Like I it's love, so I love that. I love that podcast. I've been listening to that a lot. But they have video version on YouTube too. I highly recommend watching the video. It's so yeah. Good. I'm I'm 100% really becoming a New Kirk fanboy. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, I would love totally. to meet them. I'd love to meet them, and I'm not someone that generally wants to go to a paranormal con- conference and meet somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the only person I ever really did was we went to, if you know who Lloyd Orbach is, Lloyd mm-hmm, Orbach's mm-hmm. kind of a big name. And we went to a paranormal convention near here where he was at. I think I, I accidentally stepped on his foot when I was going oh, to nice. get, to get my seat. Yeah. So made a good impression. I'm sure I did. He remembers <laughs> that guy who stepped on his foot. Yep. Sure. Yeah. We joked about that. <laughs> um, yeah, we don't have a taste test. We don't have any packages to open. 
do we have anything else or do we just jump in? I feel like this might be a a shorter. Yeah, because we talked about it that this is a my favorite mini mystery episode. But this season we're doing all hauntings for the my favorite mini mystery because some people felt we weren't doing enough paranormal stuff. And I'm one of those people. And I'm one of those people (laughs) that just think it's every episode would be they heard footsteps you know, they felt weird. There's only, uh, yep. I feel like you have to mix it up and there's only so much you can do with haunted areas. You yeah. know, granted some of them, like the history of the place is interesting. And some of the ones that I've already started researching is like a super interesting, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure what you're doing today. You sent me a picture. Really? No, I didn't recognize the picture. It looked like okay. a big, it looked like a big hotel. That's all I know. Well, and yeah. I'm, I'm guessing it starts with an S uh-huh okay uh-huh. <laughs> okay and you That's have gonna be a real shocker you have no idea what i'm doing this. you have no idea what i'm doing today uh yeah, i'm doing do something here? i'm doing something a little different you know me i always gotta like do something a little obscure uh, not different. obscure but just different from the norm i guess okay so i think that being said i think jump into yours whenever the heck you want okay so Surprise, surprise. This is one I've talked about a lot and always say, we should do this. We should do this. So I'm doing the Stanley Hotel. Shocker. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to start with some history. I'm not going to. So I got this from a variety, all this information from a variety of sources. So we can. Oh, and that's another thing. Before I forget, after this episode, I want to get better with putting the like web links to what articles I use and stuff in our show notes, because I don't do that. And I've been listening to a lot of astonishing legends and they do that. And a lot of times I'll go to their show notes to get stuff like for when I'm researching a topic. So it's nice to have everything in the show notes. So seven seasons in, I'll finally start doing that. It's fun that we've talked about the Newkirks and Astonishing Legends because I mentioned all of that in my topic today. (laughs) Oh, cool. That's funny. And I've actually listened to a lot of Astonishing Legends for my next topic. So I I just really like that podcast. And before I forget, this is probably like an off off air thing to talk about, but they do a thing where you can submit like uh I don't remember what they call it, a stinger or a teaser, because when they go to commercial they come back, there's always like somebody saying, Hey, this is so and so and you are now back to Astonishing Legends and you can submit one. So I wonder if you and I should submit one Ooh, for that'd this. Be fun. It would be fun. So yeah. So maybe we'll do that. Think about that. Yeah. Um, okay, so my my sources are Wikipedia, Astonishing Legends, um, Uncover Colorado uh, Week and Weird, which is the Newkirk's website slash, um, it's like an online magazine, I guess you could call it. Um, I think those are all of my sources. So I'm going to start with the history. So in 1903, the steam-powered car inventor, Freeland Oscar Stanley, was stricken with uh, tuberculosis. And of course, back in those times, the recommendation for treatment was fresh, dry air, lots of sunlight, a hearty diet. Yep. So Stanley resolved to take the curative air of the Rocky Mountains as his treatment. So he and his wife, Flora, arrived in Denver, Colorado in March and in June. So this was in 1903 on the recommendation of Dr. Sherman Grant Bonney moved to Estes Park, Colorado for the rest of the summer. His health improved dramatically. So he was really impressed by the area, um, grateful for his recovery, and he decided to return every year. Um, The guy lived to 91, died of a heart attack in Newton, Massachusetts in uh, 1940. So in 
19 by 1907 he had recovered completely but he just wasn't really content with the accommodations where he was staying and so he began construction on Hotel Stanley is what it was called in 1907 it's a it was a 48 room grand hotel that catered to the class of moderately wealthy urbanites um it was kind of like his social network back east as well as just other people with tuberculosis who were seeking a healthful climate uh, he purchased the land in 1908 through the representatives of the fourth Earl of Dunraven and Mount Earl. Um, and there's a whole bunch of stuff about that, which I think is kind of boring. Uh, <laughs> um, Lord Dunraven had claimed 15,000 acres in Estes Valley, trying to make it into like a private hunting preserve. For um, some reason, I feel like Colorado for helping with tuberculosis wouldn't be good because of the elevation and it, you know, like you breathe a little, it's like more difficult to breathe there. Maybe, maybe yeah, not, maybe not in this think. section. Well, and I also feel like that was the belief back in the day. I don't know enough about tuberculosis to know if they actually felt that, like, did it turn out that that actually was the best treatment? Was this guy just lucky? Cause I feel like there were all these tuberculosis, like, you know, the, a lot of paranormal investigations end up at places that were former tuberculosis, yeah. like whatever you call it, their former asylums, whatever. And they always thought that that was the best treatment. They'd have like these rooms that people could go to that would expose them to fresh air and sun. I think it but was called a sanatorium, the... but sanatorium. and not a sanitarium yeah. because those are two different things. Oh, but I don't know okay. if if the Maribel Hotel here in in close to me in Maribel was. Because they had, and that reminded me a lot of our book club book, by the way, because they they supposedly had healing water there, you know. So I don't know yeah. if I don't mm-hmm. know if the, ho- the the Maribel Hotel was a tuberculosis place, but could be. I also think it was just like back when they didn't, they were just starting to understand like medicine and yeah, and you know what I mean, like yeah. what seemed like probably a, a good treatment for something back then. Now we're like, oh my god, I can't believe they. They I really want to. I'd love to visit Colorado. I really would. I do. I've never been there. We have friends who go skiing there every well, every year. Maybe everything. sometime we'll go there. Check out the the Stanley. And not go skiing. That that's no. Not I'm not skiing. a yeah. No. <laughs> I God. did that when I was a teenager. It was fun. I don't think. Yeah, I but now at this age, that's just a recipe for disaster. <laughs> yeah. I'd be doing all my Skype episodes with you from my hospital bed, all propped Pretty up much. in my body cast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, Okay, so the main hotel and concert hall were completed in 1909 and the manor in 1910. Um, So he he really operated the hotel kind of as a pastime. He said he he spent more money than he made each summer. So it was really just sort of like a passion thing for him. He sold the hotel to a private company in 1926. But then he purchased it back out of foreclosure and sold it again in 1930. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, it, it's kind of changed hands a few times, whatever. Um, we'll get to some more of that later. But I want to talk about this gas explosion. This is sort of like, it's one of these legends of possibly where some of the paranormal activity started, whatever. But there's also conflicting reports of what actually happened and who was involved as things tend to be, you know? Yep. So the hotel was alleged to be one of the few in the world powered entirely by electricity, but lack of available power had them adding auxiliary gaslighting as well. So that was in June of 1911. 
On June 25th, the day after the pipes had been filled, an explosion occurred that injured a maid and damaged the structure, um, though contemporary newspaper articles dif differ on certain details. So this one, this is just a snippet from the York Dispatch, York of York, Pennsylvania. And it said the Stanley Hotel built at a cost of 500000 Could you imagine now what that would cost? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was partly wrecked last night. Uh, by an explosion of gas. Eight persons were injured, one seriously. None of the guests were injured, so they were all employees. Elizabeth Wilson of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a hotel employee, was hurled from the second to the first floor, and both ankles were broken. And then I guess the other seven people that were injured were waiters. When the Lancaster paper reprinted this story, the editor noted that Elizabeth Wilson's name did not appear in local directories and she could not be identified as Lancastrian, which is funny. Way That's a cool that. word. That's actually a cool word. Yeah. <laughs> Similar accounts in local Colorado papers give the maid's name as Elizabeth Lambert, not Wilson, and convey, convey various dramatic details that are not confirmed by other articles. So it's kind of one of those things where it's like, okay, what actually really happened? Um there's another article from the Fort Collins Express that seriously refutes the fact that she was hurled from the second to the first floor. So, you know, this is kind of how things go. E even in today, news, this is how it goes. You get different de details yeah. of the story depending on where you look. Yep. Um, so now this this is from Uncover Colorado, which kind of digs into the paranormal stuff. So according to an article on Uncover Colorado. This is where Elizabeth Wilson's story should end, but it doesn't. According to some hotel guests and staff, her spirit is said to still inhabit room 217. But reports claim that she's typically more helpful than scary. And I, I've heard this. Like, I've heard when people are talking about the Stanley, she's like someone who will, like, tidy up the room. Yeah, she, like, like put your clothes. Yeah, yes. yeah, which is awesome. That's a that's right? kind of ghost I like. She's still kind of doing her job, basically, because she yeah. was a former maid. One couple told a staff member at the Stanley that their bed was made around them during the night while they were Okay, that's, that's a little <laughs> weird. Little yeah, that's a little creepy, but I mean, if it's you're like, kind of, I feel like, I was just going to say, I feel like that's basically being tucked in, which is kind of cool. Exactly. You know, I'd be cool with that. Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, but take note, if you're considering staying in this famous hotel and aren't married, you may not have the most restful night if you choose to stay in room seven, 217. Unmarried couples have reported a chilly presence settling into bed with them as they've slept. So it's, it's, I mean, think about the time. It, well, yeah. It's very uncommon for unmarried people to live together. Yeah. And sleeping and sleep in together. Bed, yep. so. so she's kind of a prude. Yeah, a little bit. She unapproves of, you know. <laughs> Hanky panky. Yep. Exactly. Um, some people believe that Stanley himself is still wandering around the hotel. People say that he can be seen. People feel his presence, mainly at the bar and in the billiard room. Um, the phantom of his wife, Flora, has a penchant for tinkering around on the hotel's piano, according to multiple accounts. Some hotel tour guides believe a ghost of a child with autism wanders the property and plays with guest hair. I don't know what the history of that is or why. I don't know, but I, I know we talked about the Stanley in our Colorado Strange mm. States episode, and I don't remember if I said that, but I do remember reading that, that oh, okay. supposedly people get their hair played with. Oh, interesting. And guests on the fourth floor of the Stanley have shared stories of hearing children's laughter in the hall with no one to be found. <laughs> 
Rachel Thomas, a tour supervisor for the Stanley Hotel, claimed she was mysteriously made ill on this floor in a 2021 interview. Creepy happenings like these have made the hotel an internationally famous hotspot for supposed hauntings. And of course, it's been featured on Ghost Adventures, Ghost Hunters, mm -hmm. etc. Whether ghosts actually exist or if life after death is real or not is not something we're equipped to meaning. This is Uncover Colorado saying this, not me. Mm -hmm. They they can't meaningfully address it or answer it in the short article, but they can tell you with 100% certainty that the Stanley Hotel has a couple of decidedly creepy locations. So they have an on-site pet cemetery, which <laughs> kind of surprised me. I feel like this is all of Stephen King's books like wrapped, wrapped in, in a one. one location. And isn't room 217 or whatever the room that Stephen that's King... Stephen King yes. stayed in. Yep. Yep. We'll get to that. Okay. Ooh, oh, you, you just curted me. Long distance. Yeah. So apparently the pet cemetery is where some of the owner's animals have been laid to rest over the years. So one is named Cassie, a golden retriever. Apparently she still delivers newspapers and scratches at people's doors to be let in and out, which is interesting. Um, there's a large cave system that's located under the hotel. Um, so back in the day, it was kind of seen as unprofessional for the staff to be seen by the guests. So they ha they would use underground pathways to travel between like the bar, the restaurant, laundry, etc. Um, the ghost of a pastry chef is said to haunt the caves. Um, apparently, you can smell the scent of like delicious baked goods when you're down there. <laughs> that's actually that's <laughs> like, actually. That's I was thing. thinking about that. And I'm like, wow, the ghost of a pastry chef is kind of a. Okay. That's a movie that's waiting to happen. <laughs> right. Uh, room 401 is apparently, according to some people, the creepiest room in the hotel. It's thought to be haunted by an unfriendly male ghost. Women have claimed that they were inappropriately touched. Oh, speaking of hanky-panky. Yeah, exactly. By an unknown, unknown presence while standing in the room's closet. Uh, one man claims he witnessed his wedding ring inexplicably move from the bathroom counter and fall down the drain of the sink in the bathroom. Oh, as if to say, hey, yeah. I'm not married anymore. She's mine. <laughs> yep. That's creepy. Um, down the hall in room 407, multiple guests have reported the odd experience of being tucked into bed. Oh, so now again, we have some, it's like I've never read this article before. Tucked into bed by some invisible <laughs> force. Uh, maybe Elizabeth is making the rounds. Um, others have felt someone sit on the foot of the bed, only to find nothing but an indentation left there. In room 428, so there's a lot of stuff that happens in the four rooms, the 400 rooms. Mm -hmm. Some have seen the vision of a cowboy looming over the bed as they slept or standing in the corner. There aren't any rooms above this room, yet over the years, multiple reports uh, claim that they hear strange sounds like furniture being moved and footsteps. It's so I, so you can tell this is a beautiful location. Mm -hmm. It is. I mean, I would that this would be like a dream, a dream visit for me. For sure. I, I know some of our listeners have stayed there. You know, I oh, think really? it's I think it's yeah. You know, I guess yeah. People have talked about I it. I think it's pretty pricey, but, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you and I will do that next year. That'll be a road trip. Yeah. Yeah. Four. OK, let's talk about Stephen King. So I'm going to start out by saying that I 100% had misconceptions about this whole thing. I thought Stephen King had like a real paranormal experience there. Like I've always thought that. I don't know what I thought I heard or read, but I assumed he experienced some kind of paranormal activity. I thought he did too. No. <laughs> huh. So this okay. is interesting. Yeah. Um, I guess one thing you could maybe associate with, 
as paranormal, but I, it, it was a nightmare. And I, I guess I don't think nightmares are paranormal. They're just our brain's way of like telling us things. Yeah. So, okay. And 19, well, and the interesting thing is there's some conflicting stories about what he experienced again. Um, but these are based on like uh, interviews that he's given over the years. So in 1974, this is from Wikipedia during their brief residency in Boulder, Colorado, uh, Stephen King and his wife, Tabitha, spent one night at the Stanley Hotel. Um, at the time of his visit, he was writing a book and the working title, Dark Shine, which was set in an amusement park, but he wasn't satisfied with the setting. Um, lo some locals had suggested a resort hotel located in Estes Park, which was an hour away from where they were staying, and they checked in at the Stanley Hotel just as its other guests were checking out because it was shutting down for the winter. So after checking in and after Tabitha went to bed, King roamed the halls and went down to the hotel bar where drinks were served by a bartender named Grady. As he re returned to his room, 217, his imagination was fired up by the remote location, its grand size, its eerie um, feeling because they were the only people there. And later when he went into the bathroom and pulled back the pink curtain for the tub, which had claw feet, he thought, what if somebody died here? At that moment, I knew I had a book. Awesome. And he kept the name Grady, which is kind of cool. I know, I know. <laughs> however, okay, however, though, in 1977, in an interview he did with Literary Guild, he said, quote, while we were living in Boulder, we heard about this terrific old mountain resort hotel and decided to give it a try. And he goes to talk about how, like, they were the only people there. All There were these long, empty corridors, et cetera. They were the only people eating in the dining room. So, like, every chair was up on the tables except the table that they were sitting at. Like, that would be – that's, like, a little creepy. That's – that's totally I don't know. Creepy. There's something, like, unsettling about that. Well, exactly. And just this place was kind of massive. And he said there's, like, music echoing down the hall. And he's like, God put me here to, to see and hear these things. And that night – by the time he went to bed, he said he had the whole book for The Shining in his mind. So <laughs> it, it, I guess this is sort of the same as the first, but now there's another retelling of his experience where he says, I dreamed of my three-year-old son running through the corridors, looking back over his shoulder, eyes wide and screaming, and he was being chased by a fire hose. I woke up with a tremendous jerk sweating all over within an inch of falling out of bed. I got up, lit a cigarette, sat in a chair looking out the window at the Rockies, and by the time the cigarette was done, I had the bones of The Shining firmly set in my mind. So it's like depending on what interview he gave, yeah. it, was a, it was a nightmare that inspired it. It was just the setting. Maybe it was a combination of all these things, and in these interviews, he just sort of, you know, pieces and parts that story together, but... I'm actually, actually writing this down because I think the shining would like facts about the shining or cool things about the shining would be a good side sessions topic. So oh, I just, totally. I just wrote that down. Okay. Good call. Um, so if you, I think this is kind of fun. If you go to the Stanley website that you can obviously look at what the accommodations are and they actually have like a little section that says spirited rooms. Mm -hmm. It says, quote, the Stanley hotel features a variety of rooms with high paranormal activity, including the famous Stephen King suite two seventeen the Ghost Hunter's favorite room, 401, as well as 407 and 428. These are among our most requested rooms, and availability is limited. Yeah, I think the odds of getting one of those rooms, like if we stay there on a weekend, is not probably good. You probably have to book out like a year in advance. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not something you could be like, hey, in June, let's go there. It's probably you're, you're out of luck already. 
Would would we um, would we want to stay in a haunted room though? Oh heck yeah, we would. Okay. <laughs> what kind of question is that? Okay. Well, I don't know. I never um, know. Okay, I'm gonna talk about Connor J. Randall a little bit. So if you're a Hellier fan, you know who Connor is. Um, I, I like Connor. I do too. Actually, when I when I was watching Hellier and Connor, his parts would come up. Jim was like, I like that guy. He's but like, you know, you know, was it Connor when I was listening to the podcast last week? Like one thing that was kind of like, oh, was that is that he's a a magician or he wanted to be a magician. But that kind of reminded me of Grant, too, from Ghost Hunters. And that was one of the reasons why people were skeptical. It's because if anybody is going to know how to fake something or to make or to to make something look legit when it's not, it, it would be a magician. So when he said that, I was like, oh. I just feel like, I don't know, every time I listen to them or watch anything with them, I just get this sense that. They're the ones who the first thing they're going to try to do is explain something, debunk it. Like, I just feel like... I just have such a hard time with the Estes method when the person that supposedly can't hear is almost answering mm-hmm. exactly right after the person says something. That, yep. that you know, but I'm also... I'm talk I, about that. Okay, but I don't like the <laughs> Estes method. I'm, I'm freaked out by the Estes method. And Ooh, it amazes I... me how many of my students know that. Like I they know, like that's so that's the big thing right now, I guess, in in paranormal circles is the it Estes is. method. Yep. But that that God thing, I don't want to ever do that. That no, the God with the mag, yeah, whatever. the magnets around your brain. No, thank you. No, no. Yeah. So okay, so we're gonna talk about Connor first, and then we're gonna talk about the Estes method. Um. So this I listened to. Well, I listened to part of Astonishing Legends yesterday to get this piece. It's episode 161, The Stanley Hotel with Connor J. Randall. And this was when did they record this? I have the date somewhere. No, I can't remember where I put it anyway. So most of our listeners will know him from Hellier. He was a resident paranormal investigator at the Stanley Hotel for several years. So he is a heart transplant recipient. Yes, yes. A lot of people don't know that. Um, and he was at an event for a local, this is his experience at the Stanley that kind of, well, I'll get to it. Okay. okay. So you, just, at, you just curted yourself. <laughs> I curted myself. Um, he was in that, at an event for a local fundraiser for the local children's hospital. He was about eight or nine years old. He said he was standing in the lobby at the Stanley in the main concert hall. He was supposed to like, like hold a check or something and, he was sort of like, you know, a representative for someone who had benefited from the services at the local children's hospital. Um, and he said he watched a door lock, like latch itself and lock by itself with nobody being around. And so he he was already interested in the paranormal, but that just witnessing that with his own eyes in, in a room full of people, mm-hmm. like broad daylight, just added fuel to the fire. So he started working at the Stanley as a concierge and tour guide as a teenager and then this started morphing into like a nighttime thing. So like the management was like, Hey, why don't we start doing nighttime tours within a paranormal investigation? This was the management who suggested this. Mm -hmm. So when he was 19, he landed this job of like paranormal investigators. It started as like a tour guide thing, doing paranormal stuff. And then he was literally his, title was like paranormal investigator investigator he was a paid hotel staffer with that title. god i would love that job no kidding he said he spent over because he was he was in that role for five years he was 19 years old he said it was over a thousand nights he spent investigating the stanley hotel talk about a dream job god where do where do we sign up for that i know no kidding 
Um, so he... If you're listening to this and you own like a huge hotel and you want a, <laughs> a hired paranormal investigator, give me a call. Yeah. I mean, I'd like it to be haunted as well. But <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So I want to talk about the Estes method with the Estes method, which is what we just mentioned. Um, the first time I ever saw it was on Hellier and I've since seen it mostly on kindred spirits, although they call it the a ghost box session. I think when it comes to this stuff, if you're not using really specific equipment, you can't call it something. Yeah. Um, so this is from an article from Week and Weird, written by Greg Newkirk. Um, it's called The Estes Method, How the Groundbreaking SB7 Spirit Box Experiment is Changing Paranormal Investigation. Um, so I'm going to kind of jump around. It's kind of a long article. but So for the last two decades, ghost hunters have relied on a fairly unchanging bag of tools but a new parapsychological experiment is shaking up the field with jaw-dropping results. That being said, I know some paranormal investigators that themselves are bags of tools, but... Oh, 100%. So, yeah. Okay, go on. <laughs> There's a lot of... I don't know if anybody else still watches paranormal shows or follows any of those people on social media, but there's something happening right now <laughs> with Zach Bagans. Like a bunch of people are about to like speak and call him out on stuff. Oh, seriously? Like, I didn't know that. Yeah. There's some drama going on. <laughs> I try to, I just, I don't, I don't know. I don't feel like, even though we kind of are, I don't feel like we're a part of the paranormal community enough that I, pay attention to what's going on in it, mm -hmm. you know, cause you and I aren't that no. type of people, you know, like, no. like I yeah. would, I would like to go to that thing at the Glen Beulah school where they're having that paranormal oh, yeah. con mm -hmm. convention. It would be cool meeting some people, but that's just not our shtick, you know? So I, I gotta have to look this, I'm going to have to investigate the Zach Bagan stuff. Cause that's interesting. Yeah, and I would say the only reason I follow these accounts is because I really like Because you have a crush on Zach Bagan. Because you have a crush on I do not follow. <laughs> Maybe I do follow Zach Bagans. I think I might actually. Um, no, it's I got a little bit of a crush on, on Dana Newkirk. but Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think I probably do too. Okay. Um, no, I, I like to <laughs> Good follow to know. them just because I, I like to know like podcast stuff or like Amy Bruni has a podcast. I follow her. Um, and also when new seasons of shows are coming out, that's how I know there's a season three of hell you're being shot right now. So. Yeah. Which is good. Cause then you tell me because I generally don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So three years ago, like I said, I'm skipping around. So this article was written in 2019, just to give you some context, but three years ago, a groundbreaking new form of extrasensory communication was conceived in Estes park, Colorado, deep within the haunted walls of the famous Stanley hotel. I never knew that's where it came from, where the title no, came from. I, I never knew that. Either. Wow. I didn't either. I didn't know that Connor and Carl Pfeiffer are the ones who like came up with this method. Like, wow, I never knew I that. I learned all this reading this article. <laughs> I just learned it right now. Good Lord. Um, so it says, at the time, the creators, full-time resident paranormal investigators of the property, had little idea what they developed or how much it would impact the paranormal field in such a short amount of time. Um, January 21st, 2016, Carl Pfeiffer. So if you're familiar with Hellier, he's sort of, I think he's, you would call him the videographer, yeah. the cinematographer or whatever. Yeah. Um, along with his fellow resident investigators, Connor Randall and Michelle Tate were spitballing an idea they'd been kicking around since 2011. What if they isolated the noise from an SB7 spirit box, a device that forces sweeping radio signals into chunks of randomized noise, which many ghost hunters believe can be manipulated by spirits to send messages, 
and fed it into a person, making them the receiver. With time to kill, the group hooked Connor Randall up to a pair of headphones and sat him down in the concert hall's basement hallway where the team had been experiencing increased activity in prior weeks. While Connor sat quietly, eyes closed, listening to a direct read from the SB7, Pfeiffer began to ask questions pointed at the ghost in the Stanley. To his surprise, Randall began to spit out answers, and they were making, they were making too much sense to be coincidence. I was expecting there to be some interesting moments when we began that we'd sometimes have random words aligned, but during the first session, I was very surprised at the consistency, Pfeiffer says. To rule out any trickery, Pfeiffer and Randall continued to tweak the experiment, adding a blindfold to ensure that the receiver couldn't read lips. Randall, drummer for the Colorado-based punk band, The Ghoulies. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. Yeah, Connor Randall is a drummer for a punk band. <laughs> Apparently, I'm learning all okay. sorts of stuff about the the uh, Hellier crew. His official job, and I learned this in the pod, Astonishing Legends. I didn't write any of it down, but the it's like the House of Re- Representatives or something. He's like their official reader. So, like, if they're reviewing some kind of bill or something, I'm probably using all the wrong terms. He reads them out loud. <laughs> For everyone to hear, like, this is what he does for a living. <laughs> I did not know that. political science degree or something. I don't know. Jeez. He's a jack of a lot of All trades, trades apparently. Yeah. I think he's a master of several, if you ask me. The it guy just, is, like, super intelligent. just makes me feel depressed about myself that I don't <laughs> do more. We are not doing enough, Kurt. No, we are not. <laughs> so anyway, apparently drummer Randall suggested they add a pair of noise-isolating headphones to rule out the possibility of the receiver hearing the questions being asked. Things only got more interesting from there. Quote, when we added the headphones and the blindfold, we didn't find any real difference in the responses we were getting, but there was a distinct boost in confidence in the responses, Pfeiffer says. When using something like earbuds, especially a cheap kind, you can, you just can't fully trust that some kind of sound isn't leaking through, no matter how much you trust your receiver. So on our second try, when we had direct specific commentary about what was happening in the room, it was as good as any other ghostly activity. It's pure excitement. I was stunned. They named their experiment the Estes Method, an homage to Estes Park, Colorado, home of the Stanley Hotel. And so it's really the birthplace of this groundbreaking paranormal experiment. That's cool. Um, so I'm going to kind of skip ahead here. I, I remember, shout out to Rhonda, when you mentioned a friend of yours or whoever has a house that they might want us to investigate, yes. something she said is I'm dying to try the Estes method. Or I don't know if she called it that, but I'm like, yes, me too. Like I I'm, really, and I'm, I'm going to sit that out. I just don't want to do that. Oh, I totally want to do it. And But I think if we have people like, us, our tight-knit group, we know and we trust. Yeah. And we see that it works. I, I think that helps with some of the um, validity suspicion. of, of yeah, yeah. Yeah. Eliminate some of the suspicion and, and yeah, kind of validates the process and what we're seeing maybe on TV. There are definitely sessions on Kindred Spirits where I'm like, how is that? Like, it's too good. It's yeah, so and that's accurate. how I feel about Hellier. As much as I like Hellier, I feel like some of that was just too good. And it's like, mm. You know, but I, yeah, that's one of those things that I would love to see, but what you guys do. So then I, you know, I believe you guys more than I believe somebody that's on TV. Totally. Yeah. Okay. So I'm skipping ahead to, so how is the Estes method actually working? 
The sensory deprivation methods coupled with a form of nearly white noise are a throwback to the heyday of psi research being performed in places like Duke University. So if you were to ask this paranormal researcher, I'd say the answer, and this is uh, Greg Newkirk talking, I'd say that the answers received through the Estes method are psychically induced. While the conscious mind is busy listening to sweeping radio channels, the receiver is lulled into sort of a trance which is noted by the back and forth rocking motion performed by performed by, by most receivers. And they actually begin to hear words and phrases that aren't even in the feed. So they be, sort of become like a channel for a psychically related message. Maybe that's what <laughs> would freak you out as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, I think that would. <laughs> this might not be impressive if the receiver could actually hear or see questions being asked by the operator, but with the sensory deprivation, deprivation elements in place, it only makes the case for channeling stronger. It, it actually appears that the SS method works even better when the receiver is already psychically inclined, which that of course makes sense. Um, of course, that's just my opinion. This is Greg talking after observing and performing numerous Estes method sessions of my own. When I asked Carl about his thoughts on what he and Connor had created, he had a much different response. Quote, that's the big question. Are the spirits manipulating or broadcasting radio signals, which is always a contentious point with the SB7? Or is it something more due to the listener, who seems to quite easily fall into a meditative trance-like state? At this point, we can't discard either. We do have experiments we're working through to try to better separate the two possibilities, but to date, I do not have an, an, I try not to have an opinion. Connor Randall is a bit more to the point. Quote, I think it's quite possible that the method is simply a barrier breaker to being able to perceive the voices of spirits that are trying to communicate via our minds. It's been said by many investigators that the best ghost hunting tool in the arsenal is the person themselves. I totally mm -hmm. agree with that. Mm -hmm. We just took it to another level, literally making the person's auditory senses and mental perception the instrument. So um, let's see. I'm jumping ahead because there's actually a how, how do you do it? I kind of want to read through this. So how to accurately perform the Estes method. So this is for anyone who is interested and also for us if we want to try this in the future. With its use on shows like Kindred Spirits and Hellier, it's inevitable that the wider public will begin to experiment with this. So I asked Pfeiffer and Randall for advice. Here's what you need for an effective Estes method session straight from the creators of the experiment. Number one, a willing receiver and a willing operator. Kurt is not the willing receiver. You can be the <laughs> you can be the operator. The operator, I'd be cool. I, I'd be okay with that, but the receiver thing freaks me out for some reason. I 100% want to be the receiver. Okay. A solid, tight blindfold. This particular particular type of mask, affectionately referred to as an eyebrow <laughs> by Randall. <laughs> an eyebrow. Eyebrow. Yep. Wow. An S. 7B spirit box, preferably the latest model. They're much louder, which helps rule out fraud by unscrupulous receivers. A pair, oh boy, these these are really uh, technical, but a pair of Vic Firth S1H1 or S1H2 stereo isolation headphones. Mm -hmm. These are vastly important. If you aren't using these headphones or an equivalent, throw out all of your evidence. These cans were made for the studio drummers and block external noise up to 25 decibels, ruling out unintentionally hearing the operator's questions or outright fraud. So I know Vic I mean, Firth is like a big name in drumming. I don't know how I know that, but I know they are. So that makes sense. Yeah. And this does 
feel to me like it would be 100% key to, to doing the experiment in a way that you, you can't rule out, yeah, fraud or even accidentally, like maybe you're sort of subconsciously hearing the questions really yeah. low level and yeah. not realizing it, yeah. but you want to rule all that out. You don't want to just go buy those at like Dollar General or something like that. Like you need the good ones, in other words. <laughs> yeah. The receiver should make themselves as comfortable as possible, place their blindfold on, and fasten it tight enough to block out all light. The headphones should be plugged into the spout jack on the newer SB7 Spirit Box models and not the headphone jack. Okay, that's interesting. The spout jack is much louder and helps rule out fraud. Once the receiver is comfortable and ready, set it to scan at the loudest possible volume. That would actually be really hard for me. I think that would be the hardest part is how loud yeah. the sound is. That would, I think that would like... I feel like it would scramble your brain for a little bit if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, but maybe maybe that's be... maybe that's one of the things that is the key to this is a good brain be. scrambling. Yeah. It's so loud and overwhelming that you can't even really focus on what's happening. So if you hear a word, you just shout it out. And if it makes sense, it makes sense. If not, you wouldn't know the difference anyway because you can't hear the questions. Um, it says be mindful of the forward or reverse options. So if it, it's not rewinding or playing any stations backwards, if you're re using the reverse setting, he said, Connor says he prefers to sweep forward on AM stations at the fastest sweep rate, but this is personal preference. Uh -huh. um, it says Pfeiffer and Randall pointed out that it's not important for the receiver to try and discern what voices might be supernatural versus the radio. Ah, interesting. Simply say anything that you hear clearly. You'll recognize commercial blips and music, they say. The po important part is just saying anything and everything that's coherent. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. It's just about getting comfortable, opening yourself up, repeating everything you hear, having the right equipment. I don't know. I mean, I think there, there are a lot of things we'd have to get lined up. I, I don't have a spirit box. <laughs> you no, spirit no, box? but I mean, we could use some of our money we're getting from our listeners for the, for the spirit I, box. Yeah. That's true. That's you true. Know. That would be an interesting thing to record, actually. It would. And post for our listeners. It would be. Yeah. Um, and I know we want to do more, like, going out in the field and recording. Yeah. Like, maybe when we go down to see Vicky, you know, in Stoughton, or when we go on our trip or go somewhere. I want to do more of that. Like, when we go down to, to do the thing with Aaron that we're talking about doing, where we go down to... Holy Hill, whatever the place is that's down by Aaron, it would be cool to oh, like Holy bring Hill? some. That's what you're talking about. Going with Aaron is Holy Hill. Yeah, because like south of Ace, oh, not so that cool. far from where Aaron lives is Holy Hill. And I was looking that's at like haunted beautiful. Wisconsin places. Mm -hmm. So we figure we'd go down, go there with Aaron, check it out, maybe do a little mini investigating, you know, bring a, our recorders and stuff. And then whatever time we have left, we could geocache. And then when Aaron comes on, that's what we'll talk about. Hmm. That would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I I think if we if we could try it on our road trip too. Yeah. Because we'll have people with us who also want to try it. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, this article kind of goes on and on. If you're interested, just go to weekendweird.com or search uh, Connor Randall's Estes method. It's one of the article first articles that comes up. But I just thought it was interesting how it ties into this. Yeah, I did not know that. That's how it was developed. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. So yeah, that's that's the Stanley Hotel in a nutshell. I kind of went to I went to Reddit to see if I could find any cool stories, but it's literally all the same thing over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> I heard footsteps. I saw a shadow. Yeah. Person. I uh, because you know this week I obviously couldn't focus 
on Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff. So my mornings where I usually do research was basically just me going through Reddit stories and copying and pasting ones that I want to save for a future stories episode. I like it. But there's a lot of indentations on the bed and stuff like that. So when you said the indentations, I kind of had to Mm -hmm. laugh because I've been reading a lot of those. Uh, But yeah, woman in white. Hey, <laughs> that's true. That's true. But yeah, that's just that's just my thing about the parent, the haunted places that it's just so much of the same, it is. you know, but I like the history of the places. And it's like, why is it haunted? Why would it mm-hmm. be haunted? And I like the differing ghosts. You have the one that tucks people in. You have the, mm-hmm. the old guy that the throws people. Yeah, that throws or the guy that throws people's rings in the sink, mm-hmm. you know, and I would just I'd love to. I just I don't know if I'd stay in a, if I'd want to stay in a haunted room, but I would maybe. I don't I wouldn't sleep I would <laughs> yeah I would get that room so we could stay up. Well, and, that's and the thing is that I would be conked out by six thirty p.m. <laughs> but then I would be up at two, so like three is supposed to be the big witching hour, you know. So I'd be wide awake during that because I'm wide oh, awake during okay. three three a.m. every day anyway. Yeah, there you go. You know, See, we can work it out. We'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. We'll figure it out. Cool. I was kind of thinking that that's what your hotel was, but now I know the Stanley. Super obvious. Cool. You ready for mine? I'm ready. Well, you know, I like to do things a little differently, so I don't specifically have a haunted place, but I will be talking about Eastern Airlines Flight 401. Ooh, okay. Yeah, which is interesting because I've, I've... Heard bits and pieces of this. I remember this on Unsolved Mysteries. And when I was trying to decide something to do, I just stumbled across this somewhere. And I'm like, oh, I totally want to do that because I think this one is super interesting. So here we go. At 9.20 p.m. on December 29th, 1972, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 took off from JFK Airport in New York and headed to its destination, which was the Miami International Airport. The plane was a Lockheed L-1011-1 TriStar. I don't know what that really means, but that's what it was. <laughs> Someone knows. Uh, there were 163 passengers on board, three cockpit crew members, and 10 flight attendants. The plane was piloted by Captain Robert Bob Loft. That's his, They put the nicknames in here when it's Robert. It's obviously going to be Bob. But the plane was piloted by Captain Robert Bob Loft, 55 years old and a veteran pilot, ranked 50th in seniority at Eastern Airlines. Loft had been with the airline for 32 years and had accumulated a total of 29,700 flight hours throughout his career and had logged 280 hours in the L-1011. His co-pilot was First Officer Albert Burt Stockstill, 39 years old, who had 5,800 hours of flying experience, with 306 with 306 of those being in the L-1011, and flight engineer Donald Don Repo, 51 years old, who had 15,700 hours of flying experience, with only 53 of them being in the L-1011. I don't really go into a lot of detail here on the L-1011, but it was like really new jumbo jet it might have been one of the first jumbo jets actually uh but it was a significant plane but i didn't go into a whole lot of detail about the plane but those are the the three cockpit people uh that would be loft Stockstill, and repo there are a lot of conflicting reports of there being either three or four cockpit 
cockpit crew members, but I think that comes from the fact that there was a passenger on the plane named Angelo Donato, who was 47 years old, who worked for the airline and was returning to Miami from an assignment in New York and was accompanying the flight crew for the journey back, but was officially an off-duty, non-paying passenger. And I had never known, I've heard the term, but that's called deadheading. Oh, De- yeah. Yeah, deadheading is the practice of carrying free of charge a company's own staff on a normal passenger trip so that they can be in the right place for work. And I mm-hmm. never knew that. I've heard of people talking about deadheading, but that's what that is. Mm-hmm. So everything with the flight was fine until around 11.30 p.m. when the plane began its approach into Miami International Airport. After lowering their gear... Stockstill, the co-pilot, noticed that the landing gear indicator, which was a green light, was uh, didn't light up. The green light shows that the nose gear is properly locked in the down position, but it had not lit up. They cycled through all the landing gear again, but the light still didn't come on, and they couldn't figure out what was wrong. Spoiler, the bulb was burned out. You, you would think that that's kind of like a big issue, <laughs> you know, where like yeah. the bulb is burned out. Uh, and it's it was said that they could have um they could have done stuff to check it, which they kind of didn't do. The one thing they did do I'll get to it in a second though, but so they were kind of worried. So Loft, the pilot, called the tower and said, quote, Ah, tower, this is Eastern four zero one. It looks like we're gonna have to circle. We don't have a light on our nose gear yet. So the tower told them to to keep an a, uh, altitude of 2,000 feet. So the plane, which was going to land and had been over the airport, now turned back over the Florida Everglades. <clears throat> Getting congested here. <laughs> so they, they circled back and went back over the Everglades. So the crew pulled the light assembly out of the cockpit to check it, while Repo, the flight engineer, was sent down to the bay beneath the flight deck to check through a porthole whether or not the landing gear was down. And apparently this bay beneath the deck where he went was called the hellhole. Which... Oh, that sounds delightful. <clears throat> yeah, that's I was a... already thinking I don't want to be the person that has to go down there, and you just made me totally positive I don't want to be. <laughs> you don't want to head down to the hellhole? No. So, no, yeah, they sent, him, they sent him down to look through the small porthole window to see if the landing gear was down or not. Fifty seconds after reaching their assigned altitude of 2,000 feet, Captain Loff instructed the co-pilot to put the plane on autopilot. For the next 80 seconds, the airplane kept its level flight. Then it dropped 100 feet and then again flew level for two more minutes, after which it began a slow descent that was so gradual it couldn't be perceived by the crew. After a minute or so, the descent was enough to trigger the altitude warning chime located under the engineer's workstation, but Repo had gone down to look out the porthole so nobody heard the chime. After about another minute, the plane was now at 1,000 feet. They turned the plane again, and now co-pilot Stockstill noticed that something had happened. When the, flight vo- the, when the flight voice recorder was later recovered, the following conversation was recorded. You can hear Stockstill say, we did something to the altitude, and then Loft, the captain, says, what? And Stockstill says, we're still at 2,000 feet, right? And Loft says, hey, what's happening here? Oh, and then less than, a, uh, less than 10 seconds after that exchange, you hear the sound of a click and then the sound of six beeps similar to the radio altimeter increasing in rate, and then you hear the sound of impact. 
So the plane, oh, the plane was traveling at 227 miles an hour when it hit the ground in the Everglades. The plane's outer wing structure hit the ground first, followed by the number one engine and then the port's main undercarriage. The disintegration of the aircraft that followed scattered wreckage, including metal fragments, cabin fittings, passenger seats, and bodies over an area <clears throat> over an area 1,600 feet long and 330 feet wide in a southwesterly direction. Robert Budd Marquis, an airboat pilot, was out hunting frogs with his friend. <clears throat> I never understood the hunting frogs, but I from from I think it was the Astonishing Legends podcast they said that i guess <clears throat> robert marquis just had a really bad craving for frogs legs so they went mm. out to hunt frogs and uh they were the ones that that heard it and and witnessed the fireball of the crash so they took their boat and they rushed to rescue survivors marquis the the the, the guy piloting the boat received burns to his face, arms, and legs, a result of spilled jet fuel from the crash, oh but he continued pulling people in and out of the crash site that night and the next day. For wow. his efforts, he received a humanitarian award from the National Air Disaster Alliance, and he also received an award from the American Airboat Search and Rescue Association, which rightly so. I mean, he's yeah. getting burnt, and... That was a big issue with this is that jet fuel was leaking into the Everglades. And so it was basically like the water was on fire, mm. you know, so Which it was really scary to think about. It is. Oh, I should have said if you're if you're going to be listening to this on a plane, don't. <laughs> I probably should have said that when I started talking about this. Maybe. <laughs> so sorry. No, I feel like I have people all in a panic on an airplane listening to this. <laughs> In all, 75 people survived the crash, 67 of the 163 passengers, and 8 of the 10 flight attendants. Despite their own injuries, the surviving flight attendants were credited with helping other survivors and did several things. You know, they, they were going around because people were trying to light matches to see where they were, and they were going around telling people don't do that because of the jet fuel in the oh, swamp geez. water. Yeah. And this is such a weird image to me, and I don't know why this is such a uh, – like maybe we talked about this in the past or I saw it somewhere, but the surviving flight attendants had the people in groups, and they were singing Christmas carols to keep – up hope and to draw the rescue team's attention and that's such a weird vivid image to me of of these people in groups singing christmas carols which is the last thing i would want to do if i was just in an airplane crash right you know of the cockpit crew only flight engineer repo survived the initial crash along with technical officer donadeo who was down in the bay in the hellhole with repo at the moment of impact uh, co-pilot Stockstill was killed immediately on impact, while Captain Loft died in the wreckage. They found him in the wreck, like tangled up in the wreckage, and he was alive, but he died before he could be transported to the hospital. Flight engineer Repo was transported to a hospital, but he later died from his injuries. Uh, Donadeo was the lone survivor of the the four flight deck occupants, and he recovered from his injuries. Most of the dead were passengers in the aircraft's midsection. The swamp absorbed much of the energy of the crash, lessening the impact of the aircraft, but 
and and they think it actually helped because the mud of the Everglades may have blocked the wounds that were sustained oh. by their survivors. That's interesting. It prevented them from bleeding to death. But then what else do you think happened after that? What do you think happened? Infection? From yes, yes. However, it complicated whatever. their recuperation as organisms in the swamp caused major infections. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. Like brain-eating amoeba. amoeba. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's all you need, you know, after a plane crash. I mean, every single survivor was injured. 60 received serious injuries and 17 had minor injuries that did not require hospitalization. The most common injuries were fractures of the rib, spines, pelvises, and lower extremities, and 14 survivors had various degrees of burns. Uh, the National Transportation Safety Board, or the NTSB investigation, discovered that the autopilot had accidentally been switched from altitude hold to control wheel steering mode. They believe that the autopilot switch modes when the captain accidentally leaned against the stick while turning to speak to the flight engineer. So they think that he accidentally leaned over and hit that, which uh, changed it from the altitude hold to the steering wheel mode. Wow. And it said the slight forward pressure on the stick would have caused the aircraft to enter a slow descent, which is what happened. Wow. Interestingly, Captain Loft's autopsy also revealed an undetected brain tumor in the area that controls vision, but the NTSB concluded that had nothing to do with the accident. So the final NTSB report cited the cause of the crash as pilot error, specifically, quote, the failure of the flight crew to monitor the flight instruments during the final four minutes of flight and to detect an unexpected descent soon enough to prevent impact with the ground. Preoccupation with the malfunction of the nose landing gear indicated that the system distracted the crew's attention from the instruments and allowed the descent to go unnoticed, which it did. I mean, you know, but there was the chime, but the engineer wasn't at his location because he went down into the hell hole. So it was kind of like a perfect storm of what could totally. go wrong in a crash. Yeah. Several days later, the wreckage of the aircraft was pulled from the swamp. Some of its parts were able to be salvaged, including pretty much the entire galley of the airplane. The parts that were still in a relatively usable state were taken back to the airline and were fitted back onto the fleet of Eastern Airlines airplanes, and then that's when the weirdness started. A lot of this comes from a really cool blog. Uh, in October, this, a lot of these come from an October 31st, 2012 article on the website, quote, Confessions of a Trolley Dolly. And that's like an air, airline hostess's blog, which is oh, actually okay. really cool. Trolley Dolly. Yeah. Okay, the article was called The Ghost of Flight 401, and some more of it comes from a September 24th, 2019 article on the neardeath.com website called Ghosts of Flight 401. It said, although a majority of the airplane was destroyed, certain parts such as the galley were still usable. Eastern and Lockheed agreed that these parts could be reused and refitted onto other airplanes on the production line. One of these aircrafts was N318EA, and as the weeks and months passed, strange things began to happen on the airplane. So on JFK Airport 1973, an Eastern Airlines TriStar, which I believe was the one I just mentioned, was boarding for its flight down to Miami. Traveling that morning was one of the airline's vice presidents. 
As a VIP passenger, he was allowed onto the aircraft first and made his way to the first-class cabin. As he moved towards his seat, he noticed a pilot sitting in one of the seats in full uniform and went over to have a chat. During the ensuing conversation, he quickly realized that he was speaking to Bob Loft, the pilot who had died. The apparition then quickly disappeared, and the vice president rushed off to find a crew member, terrified that it might be an omen that something was going to happen to the aircraft. A search of the plane was carried out before any other passengers got on board, but there was no sign of the mystery captain. Then, a few months later back at JFK, a crew boarding the same aircraft walked into the cockpit and were surprised to see the pilot already sitting there. They started speaking to the ghost, not realizing who he was, and then he just vanished in front of their eyes. They realized that the person they had been chatting to was Bob Loft, and the flight ended up being canceled as the crew were too shaken to operate it. Hmm. On the the L-1011... Flight engineers would usually arrive at the aircraft before the other crew to carry out their pre-flight checks. One day, the flight engineer was stunned to get into the cockpit and see an Eastern second officer already sitting in his seat. He immediately recognized the guy as Don Repo. The apparition turned to him and said, quote, You don't need to worry about the pre-flight. I already checked it. And then he disappeared. Oh, so these, these pilots and the, the, the cockpit crew of the, the crash flight are all of a sudden starting to show up on other flights mm-hmm. almost like watching over and yeah trying maybe yep. trying to make sure it doesn't happen well, again. yeah well right here some weeks later another captain was checking the instruments in his cockpit before a flight from miami to atlanta and he was looking at the instrument panel when all of a sudden in the instrument panel he saw don repo's face looking back out at him and he clearly heard the words quote there will never be another crash we will not let it happen and then the face disappeared during That's a f- crazy. During a flight from Atlanta to Miami on board the, the one I mentioned before, N13EA, the flight deck crew were enjoying their meal as they cruised at 39,000 feet. You know, everything was going good. They were enjoying their meal when suddenly there was a loud knocking coming from the door of the hellhole. By now, the ghostly stories had been circulating around the company and the crew were too freaked out to look. But the knocking continued, so the flight engineer went and opened the hatch and he looked down and he saw the face of Donald Repo staring back up at him from the hatch. And then he just disappeared. After the sighting, the compartment was investigated, but there was nobody down there, but they found a malfunction that could have possibly led to a disaster. Wow. Yeah. There's testimony from a flight attendant who had observed a man in flight engineer's uniform fixing the oven in a galley. Talking to the plane's flight engineer later, the plane's engineer insisted that he had not fixed the oven and that there had not been another engineer on board. Looking at some old photographs, she recognized Don Repo as the man that she saw working on the oven. And it wasn't just flight crews who saw the ghostly apparitions. On one occasion, several caterers loading N318EA for its next flight were seen rushing off the jet and refusing to get back on. When asked why, they all stated that they had seen a flight engineer standing in the forward galley before he vanished. Passengers also reported strange occurrences. A woman sat next to an Eastern Airlines pilot who she said, quote, looked ill, and she called a stewardess to come over, and the pilot disappeared before the both of them. Another female passenger made a 
concerned inquiry uh, made a concerned inquiry to a flight attendant because she was sitting next to a man in an Eastern Airlines uniform and she was trying to talk to him, but he just looked weird and was not responding to her. And then he disappeared in full view of both of them, leaving the women hysterical. After these incidents, both women were shown pictures of deceased 401 flight crew, and they both identified Don Repo as the crew member that they see that they saw. So far, the majority of the reports of spooky goings-on and ghostly sightings have been swept under the carpet by Eastern Airlines. You know, because what airline would want passengers thinking that their airplane was haunted by dead crew members that died in a crash of one of their right. airplanes? Uh, although the airline had point-blank refused to believe the spooky stories, the sightings were reported to the Independent Flight Safety Foundation, who later commented, quote, these reports were given by experienced and trustworthy pilot and crew. We consider them significant. Eastern went on to warn its employees that they could face firings if they were caught spreading the ghost stories. But then it said that one incident changed everything. Flight 903 had just taken off from JFK en route to Mexico City. Stewardess Faye Merriweather was in the galley preparing the meals for the passengers. As she reached for the handle of the oven door, she was horrified to see the face of Don Repo staring back at her from the oven door. Not one to panic, she briskly went out to get another stewardess and the aircraft's engineer to come and take a look. When they returned, Repo's face was still staring out at them from the oven door. The, fl the flight engineer aboard the flight had personally known Repo and recognized his face right away. As they stared at the face, it looked like it was trying to say something. Then, suddenly, all three clearly heard the face mutter the words, quote, Watch out for fire on this plane. The flight reached Mexico City safely, but on the return leg, problems began with the starboard engine. After an, after an inspection, the aircraft was cleared for takeoff, but as the plane climbed away, the engine failed and backfired several times. It was quickly shut down before it caught fire and returned to the airport. Thankfully, no one was hurt during the incident, but they were shaken after what they saw in the oven door, you yeah. know. As the sightings became more and more frequent, rumors circulated that pilots and crew refused to fly on any of the airplanes that had the L-1011's parts put on it. Paranormal investigators requested numerous times to be allowed on board these planes to see if anything could be recorded, but the airline continually refused. So the airline said there is nothing going on on any of our planes, mm -hmm. but shortly after this, all of the salvaged parts from the downed airplane were later removed from the other airplanes from the fleet. So they, uh, you know, they said there's nothing going on here, but they pulled all yeah, of the, all of but still, I mean, once you, at this point, these stories going around, once you just want to head everything off at the pass and just be like, pull everything off of the salvaged airplanes, you know, but then, right. uh, some people said that some people in the company said that these were not reused on other planes, that they never did that. But on the astonishing legends podcast, they said somebody had a picture of one of these planes taken of like the pilot co-pilot, like close, kind of close up. And you can see like on the panel in the background, you can see the serial number. And people said that matches the serial number of one of the, the pieces recovered from the crashed aircraft. So mm. they think that's evidence that these were reused on other planes. 
But of course, there's lots of skeptics, and I feel like rightfully so. So from a March 21st, 2017 article on Skeptoid called, quote, Grounding the Ghost of Flight 401, the article says, and a lot of this, almost almost 99% of this comes from a book written by, I think, John Fuller. I was going to have more in here on that, but I didn't put that in here. But somebody named Fuller wrote a book, I think, called The Ghost of Flight 401. And that's where almost everything comes from is this one book. So it says, quote, Fuller wrote that the airline was apparently trying to cover this up. He said that every time an appearance of the ghost had been entered into a plane's logbook, the logbook was suddenly replaced with a new blank logbook. He told of an unidentified mechanic who came upon a whole stockroom of equipment, all in perfect working condition, that Eastern had been ordered to remove from had ordered to be removed from various aircraft. <coughs> they were all the pieces that had been salvaged from Flight 401, including the oven and elevator, along with many other pieces. Whenever someone told Fuller such a story, they frequently asked him not to use their real names out of fear of being fired. Thus, the book is full of untraceable sources and unverifiable claims. Robert Serling's 1980s book called From the Captain to the Colonel tells the complete history of Eastern Airlines from 1935 when it was headed by World War I ace Captain Eddie Rickenbacker through the late 1980s when Apollo astronaut Colonel Frank Borman manned it. I didn't know Frank Borman ran that company. Hmm. Borman, incidentally, was personally on site at the Flight 401 crash slogging through the mud helping to rescue victims. Fuller's claims that Eastern executives tried to bully their employees into silence about the ghost nearly led to a file uh, uh, lawsuit filed against the publisher of the book, but Borman nixed that, feeling that doing so would give the book even more publicity. Mm-hmm. Not one among the scores of Eastern Airlines officers and employees interviewed expressed any belief whatsoever in the ghost story, and they resented what they felt was Fuller's twisting of or inventing quotes. Borman said, quote, the one accurate quote in the book was made by Jim Ashlock when he called the entire story a bunch of crap. An Eastern representative told Serling that while pondering whether or not to sue Fuller or his publisher, they spent weeks trying to locate anyone who claimed to have actually seen a ghost and they could not find one person in the company. Serling also tracked down the Mexico City emergency landing and found predictably that there was no truth whatsoever to the story of a face appearing in an oven window. (coughs) The breakdown at subsequent emergency landing did in fact happen and was covered in a tongue-in-cheek brief in the journal of the Flight Safety Foundation. Uh, where they asked one of the pilots how it had felt to almost crash land a L-1011, the guy laughed and said, quote, scary. For a minute, I thought Repo's ghost was on the plane. Hmm. So they're thinking that his joking comment kind of yeah. turned into uh, a story of the ghost being on the plane. Sure. According to an October 26, 2020, FloridaToday.com news story called, quote, Florida Time, the ghost of Flight 401, the article says, quote, author John Fuller collected details in his 1976 book, The Ghost of Flight 401, which was later made into a kind of a bad 1978 TV movie starring, of course, William Shatner. Mm-hmm. He swore witnesses told him directly, and he argued that there were too many stories with too many specifics for this all to be a legend. Within three months of the crash, Fuller claimed, the sightings began 
always on L1011s. The sightings faded by the end of 1974. Fuller claims that Eastern management denied the incidents and that there are no official reports to support them, so of course there's no proof to the stories because they were you know, kept quiet by the company. Mm-hmm. Employees would not come forward for fear that they'd be fired or sent to the nuthouse. But, but Fuller says that flight logs detailing incidents were torn out and replaced. Jim Ashlock, who ran public relations for Eastern from 1966 until Eastern Airlines folded in 1981, said that Fuller made the whole thing up. Eastern didn't hide any logs, destroyed no documents, and didn't intimidate any employees. (coughs) Eastern Airlines was consigned to the history books when they ceased operations in 1991, but stories of the ghosts of Flight 401 still circulate today and can be found on countless ghost paranormal websites. So you can still find these stories everywhere, but Eastern Airlines is no more. And sadly, like the case in a lot of these situations, the only real uh, like tellings of the stories come from John Fuller's book, which people say were kind of made up. Hmm. So I don't know. But this kind of gets into the ideal of psychometry. Psychometry is a form of ESP characterized by the claimed ability to make associations from an object of unknown history by making physical contact with that object. Supporters say that an inanimate object may have an energy field that transfers knowledge regarding that object's history, which I think is super interesting, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, uh, the website at themystica.com says, quote, many people, especially occultists, believe that psychometry is connected to the belief of animism. They believe that all objects possess an inner or psychological life, which enable the objects to receive from and transmit impressions to other objects. <coughs> oh, cough. In this way, the impressions of an individual can be transmitted to an object which the person has in his possession, and the object can later transmit the same impressions to another individual that holds the object in his hand. The late Arnold Crowther, the witch and occultist, described psychometry in in the book, quote, The Secrets of Ancient Witchcraft which, with the Witch's Tarot, which he co-authored with his wife Patricia, that he had a belief in animism and that inanimate objects can have memories of their own. He believed that it was connected with the auras given off by all objects, and that the success of ancient witches in healing people of their villages was due to their ability to translate these auras through touch. The connection between psychometry and auras is based on the theory that the human mind radiates an aura in all directions and all around the entire body, which impresses upon everything within its orbit. All objects, no matter how solid they appear, are porous, containing small, minute holes. These minute crevices in the object's surface collect fragments of the mental aura of the person possessing the object. Since the brain generates the aura, something worn near the head is believed to better transmit vibrations. So there you go. They think that that's what happened with this airplane, that these objects that the the cockpit crew were around, like, pulled in whatever happened to them, their spirits and the whatever. Energy, and yeah, yeah. which, which we're, I think this season we're actually going to have an episode about haunted dolls. And, and that's kind of what's happening with haunted dolls is that it's pulling in something from the person that's possessing it. And then it acts as almost like a, 
a transceiver giving off paranormal experiences. Okay. So what do you think? What do you think of Flight 401? Uh, I, I love like the lore that's around it. It's just trying to decipher if any of it actually <laughs> happened. I remember like Unsolved Mysteries, like when I was a kid, seeing the face of the, the guy in the, the stove and the oven window, you know, telling them that mm-hmm. watch out for mm-hmm. fire on this plane. But I don't know. I just don't know. I, I wish there was more to back this up other than John Fuller's book. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But but there are a lot of stories about this online, about the ghosts of Flight 401, and the idea of an airplane using parts from a crashed airplane is creepy. So, I mean, I can, I can understand why Eastern Airlines would have pulled all this equipment, because once mm-hmm. word starts getting around, hey, your, your cockpit mechanism here was on Flight 401, you're not going to want to fly on that plane, you know, because you're going to want to think it has bad luck. And, and so... I don't know. It would make me think twice about it. <laughs> you yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't like flying to begin with and add. Oh, God, like I don't either. And if I knew that there was a part on the plane that was in a crashed airplane, it would just give me. The heebie-jeebies? Heebie-jeebies. And so, so some people say that's why Eastern Airlines pulled all this equipment off their flights. But then other people say it's because Eastern Airlines knew that there were hauntings going on because of these. And, you know, if I'm getting on a a, a airplane and i see the ghost of a pilot that was killed in an airplane crash i'm gonna hightail it off that plane yeah, i don't yeah. want I don't, <laughs> I don't i don't want to be on that but my my i want to believe these stories but my gut feeling is that these are just too fictional they're too good they're, too good. Yeah. <laughs> they're, too good. they're yeah. like something you would see in a ghost story 100%. Where the where the pilot yeah. where you get on the plane and there's somebody sitting next to you in a pilot's uniform that looks all sick and sweaty and whatever and all of a sudden they just disappear, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that sounds like something from a TV show, but there's just a lot of back and forth between skeptics and believers in this story and there's just not enough to back this up that right. I could find. But if if you like this, definitely listen to the Astonishing Legends episode because i think it might be a multi-part episode and they go into a lot of background on the planes and stuff you know like like we're a little hors d'oeuvre of this story if you want the full (laughs) meal check out the astonishing legends episode because they did a really good job so that is eastern airlines flight 401 cool yeah it's interesting that there's hauntings tied in with this that are like on scattered on different airplanes and stuff yeah but there's I mean, just it's an, interesting idea. it's an interesting idea it's an interesting story there's just not enough hard evidence to back it up right yeah so there you exactly. go the, cool. the stanley hotel and the ghosts of flight 401 and that's what our mini mysteries will be this season our haunted places i gotta start thinking about my next location i think i have mine already because i started looking into it last year for something else but i know you're gonna go for like the the heavy hitters you're gonna go for the biggies so i'm trying to keep with the small like the next one i think is even actually a little bit local but i'm gonna i'm gonna try to stay with like the smaller ones because i know you're gonna go for the bigger ones i'm cool with that i'm cool with that too so there you go so do we do questions listener questions first or did you well there was the app was down last time. Did you check? The yes, the app okay. was up. We only have one question, new question on there, Let's and just I, do it. I think I know it's from Adam. <laughs> so, uh, I was gonna save it. Hang on here. 
So we actually have two questions because this one was an old one that we didn't get to. But the new one from Adam says – I believe it's from Adam. It says, which TV or movie cop would you want investigating your murder? (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. Oh, boy. I don't watch a lot of, like, shows like that to – I don't, I, I, I don't, I would, I'm guessing the CSI people. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't watch any of those shows. Um, I was originally going to say Law and Order Special Victims Unit, but then I think that means I died in some kind of weird sex crime. No, that's (laughs) like some weird, so I don't, I don't want to die in some weird sex crime. So I'm going to go with probably the CSI people, but if it was like a, if it was like a, I don't want to say a cool murder, but if it was like a tricky murder, I would want the guy from Glass Onion and Knives Out because he is awesome at, at figuring out who's who killed somebody, you know, but I, I, I don't think I'm going to. Oh, you haven't watched either of those? No, they're on my list, though. We just watched Kaleidoscope. And it was watch like, watch crazy. Knives Out today. Knives Out. OK, today. Oh, today. Knives Out. Not today. Right. Today. Knives Out was good. Um. Okay. And so was Glass Onion, but Glass Onion was kind of like darkier and funnier, I think. But it was also really good. Um, but probably him if I'm killed in some weird whodunit way. But I, I, I'm trying to think of what other detectives and stuff I know. It's funny. The only show that I can think of is like Bones. Jim and I were huge fans of Bones. <laughs> but again, if if the FBI is looking into my murder, then something crazy happens. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I, I I don't know either. Who is Sipowitz? Was that's the Sipowitz? Was Sipowitz was like wasn't it NYPD order? Blue? NYPD Blue, that's hilarious. You know, I, I thought of, I thought about Thomas Magnum from Magnum PI, but <laughs> that's that's back in the eighties. Oh, that's funny. That's th- you, died, co- you died in a, a, a diamond heist? Or yeah, like, like a, a, a <laughs> diamond heist in Hawaii or something. Uh, but that, this question just made me realize how little detective stuff I watch. I never watched yeah, True True Detective. I, no, I'm more into like CIA and spy stuff than I am into like procedural like – Yeah, cool procedural stuff. dramas. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the, that Sorry, was a uh, terrible answer for that. My, my first, my first one was SVU was, it was, what's their names from, what are their names? Mariska Hargitay and the other guy. Hargitay. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. That other guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know what his name is. But I loved, uh, I loved law and order SVU, but then I just don't want to die in that kind of way. No, I don't want to die that way either. Yeah. Or CSI where they have to piece together how I died. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I'm just, I'm still going to go with SVU. So there you go. Our other question we have. I hope it's easier. <laughs> I think it's easier, but I'm also stumped on what I would say. Uh, the other question is, hey, guys, big fan here. I was just wondering if you could go back and start the podcast all over again, what would you do differently from the start? Oh, man. I figured you'd say don't do the Mur- the Maura Murray episode, but uh, but on the other <laughs> hand, every like everybody loves that episode and and our steak Actually, our steak burrito recipes. Yeah, what I was gonna oh, our sound episode. quality, like like how yeah. bad we sounded in that first season. Yeah, I don't even think it was the whole first season though. I feel like it was just the first handful of episodes, but I haven't listened to it in a really long time either. But we also didn't do a lot of stuff like like taste tests and listener questions you know 
I, I still, I still laugh. Evolved. Yeah, I still love thinking of that first episode, thinking about how we just jumped in and didn't even really say who we are. It's like, hey, I'm Kurt. This is Krista. Let's talk about the blue whale incident. <laughs> right. You know. Uh, yeah. yeah. Plus, I was borderline drunk in those first couple because I was nervous and I was drinking my big king can of Coors Light. You know. You know what? I honestly feel like. I don't know that I would do anything differently because I feel like where we are today, all these little things had to come together. Things evolved the way they did in an organic sort of way. Yeah. I I just, my thing is the sound quality. Like I always, when people say that you're just going to start listening, I'm just like, Oh, just be aware that things weren't, you know, the, the absolute professionalism we have now, you know, so don't expect, don't expect this level of professionalism that, that we achieved in seven seasons, <laughs> but I just wish the first one sounded better, I guess. Yeah. Maybe that's maybe the only thing I would say is the sound yep. quality was kind of shoddy in the beginning, but otherwise I, I feel like everything that happened was supposed to happen to get us where we are right now. Yeah. So. Not a whole lot. I wouldn't change a whole lot. No, and we need some more stories, so maybe send us – or not stories, but send us questions. We yeah, need some more questions, questions, so please send us some questions. We do have like uh, – Michaela, was it Michaela? Sent us a story, but I was, I'm was i saving oh, some I of that, that stuff for when we're together in person. Yeah. You know, but we need more listener questions, but I feel by this point people are running out of listener questions. Mm-hmm. We're always going to have new listeners, though, hopefully, fingers yeah. crossed. But. Yeah, it's slowed down a lot, so if you guys want to put the word out to your friends to listen to us, go right ahead. Uh, yeah, I guess that every once in a while we could say, like, share, subscribe, yeah. you know, yeah. rate, review, whatever. We'll maybe start We'll maybe start doing it. We'll start doing that. Someday. Uh, song selections for this episode. I don't, I might have done one of these, both of these in the past. I don't know. But for this one, I went I went for songs I love from bands that when you hear your name, you're like, ugh, you know, like they have like a bad, not a bad reputation, but just like schmaltzy, like, ugh, like they suck. Why would you like a song from them? So I went for, I went with two bands like that. Okay. Uh, the first band is one of those bands that when I hear their name, I just have this instant image in my head of what they're like. And I'm like, oh, I mean, they're good, but it's just like whatever you know so this song i i remember like just a weird memory of i was at a bar like it was during the daytime i went to a bar with a friend of mine that was in town and you know everybody in their life has those couple that you should have been with that got away and she's kind of one of those people she's kind of the ones that got away but we went to this bar in town it's not there anymore it was called desert jacks and it was notable because it had a crashed airplane in the roof, which they actually did. There was like a, it was like an airplane and it was like in the roof of the bar that looks like an airplane crashed into the roof oh. of the bar. Okay. But her and I were in there drinking, you know, we had a couple beers. It was like one o'clock in the afternoon or whatever. So it wasn't getting all schnockered, but we just went in to have a couple beers and she went over to put a song on the jukebox and she came back by me. And I think this wasn't the song she meant to play because this wasn't really one of their hits. Uh, So I don't know if she just got it wrong or whatever, but that was the first time I heard this song. And I remember I'm talking to her and I'm listening and I'm like, I kind of really like this song. So a couple YouTube comments for this song are somebody says, quote, greatest music video of all time. It captures all walks of life, our experiences, our emotions and what we all go through in just four minutes. Somebody else says, quote, 20 years ago, we were complaining about how pop this is. Now, in 2021, we would give anything for this kind of music to be on the radio again and selling millions of records. Somebody else writes, quote, 
This is a banging tune. I'm not a big fan of this group, but the moment when the chorus kicks in is awesome. Somebody else writes, quote, This song was the motivation of my life struggles back in 2004. Thank you, guys. And somebody else writes, quote, 20 years later and this video still gives me motion sickness. But man, what a hot track after all these years. And I love this song. It is by the band Lifehouse, and mm. it is the song Spin. Like, this was never one of their radio hits, but there's a video for it. And I love the video for it because, you know, it shows like there's like a baby in the hospital thing and the camera is just constantly spinning around the baby. And then it goes to other scenes where the camera is constantly spinning around. Hence and the motion sickness. Hence the motion <laughs> sickness. But I love, this was a song that my friend played on the, the jukebox and I was listening to it and I'm like, I love this song. And this is one of those songs that... I have random mixed CDs in my car, which I talk about all the time, and I'll put it in, and this will come on, and I'll be like, dang, I really like this song. And it is a song, Spin, by the band Lifehouse. I remember and Lifehouse. Once, once people say Lifehouse, you think of schmaltzy, slow pop mm -hmm. songs. Totally. But they had a lot of really good songs, actually. So it is Spin, by Lifehouse. And this other band is is still one of these bands that... It's just they were overplayed and they're just like over like just known for being poppy. And one of their songs in particular was just killed on the radio or is played all the time. But I had their CD, their first CD when it came out <clears throat> and I I loved it. And there was one song in specific that I loved on it. And that's this song. And. I wish it would have been released as a single because it's a really good song. But uh, some of the YouTube comments for this song, somebody writes, quote, I wore out this CD twice in the 90s because of this song. Thank goodness for YouTube. Somebody else writes, quote, I first heard this song when I was moving from Colorado to Ohio, and I think it came on when we were somewhere in the middle of Kansas. It's still such a moving song to me. Somebody else says, quote, I hate it that people only know their hits because it's the deep cuts like this track that are the ones that will stick with you for the rest of your life. Somebody else writes, quote, I had this CD at home for a few years and never gave it a full listen. My closest aunt was dying in the hospital and I pulled out the CD on the way to visit her and I heard this song for the first time. This song reminds me of her and that she will always be there for me. And somebody else writes, quote, one of those songs that you play loud in your car as you're driving down a long country road on a summer afternoon. Hmm. And the band is Train. Sure. And the, the song is called I Am. Okay. And it's off their first CD. Like, I love this song. I think it's got mandolin. It's got harmonica. It's just a really, really good song. And it's it's probably in my top 10 favorite songs of all time. It is the song I Am by the band Train. And I will have both of these posted in the group tomorrow when I post this episode. Sweet. Do we have anything else? I don't think so. It's been an hour and a half, so it's a shorter yeah, episode. Uh, Linda was said she was laughing because she was go she's going back and listening to our older episodes. And she said there's one where we were kind of freaking out because we hit like almost a two hour mark. And it's like now all of our episodes almost are longer than two hours, yeah, totally. you know, except this one because we're not together in person. So we didn't get to do any of our in-person stuff. But just the deets, I guess. Just huh? the deets. Email us at sessions at gmail.com. We are on Twitter, I think, still at Strange Session without the final S. We're probably, we'd never go there, so it's probably taken over by some some uh 
you know, by some bot that's sending out tons of really annoying stuff. We are on Instagram where Krista does a great job at the strange sessions. And we have lots of awesome listeners on Instagram. I love our Instagram listeners. Mm -hmm. You can send postcards and snail mail to the strange sessions at PO box four, three, four Manitowoc, Wisconsin, five, four, two, 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 five, four, two, two, one dash zero, four, three, four. And you can call our lonely phone line at nine, two, oh, four, four, three, ninety six, oh, two. You can send us a listener story at the strange session stories dot er boy. Start over here. I should have I should have made this like shorter. You can send listener stories to the strange sessions stories at gmail.com or you can do an audio clip of you saying your story, which is what I think Michaela did, and and email it to us at the strange sessions at gmail.com. So those are all the places you can reach us. I can send you Krista's address if you guys wanted to. So just let me know. And I think that is it. I think so. Do we have anything else before we slide into the side sessions? I don't think so. I love that everybody enjoyed the last one about Michael Larson and his press your luck shenanigans. That was a fun story. It is. And it's like I said, the guy didn't really do anything wrong. Oh. No, he he hacked the, he hacked the system, but he didn't do anything. He didn't cheat. Mm-hmm. He just hacked the system. I like the one we have today. It's going to be a shorter one, but this is another one of these that not a lot of people know about. But I think it's something really noteworthy and important. So, and I'll I'll admit right now, it was basically stolen from the Sofa King podcast because they okay. did an episode about <laughs> it, and I was like, oh, I never heard of this. So that'll be today's side sessions. And I think that's it. I'm looking out my window at the gray sky, gloom, snow coming tonight. Yeah, it's more snow coming tonight. So picking up all my groceries today. I had a gift card for Little Caesars Pizza. And the day that Narnia was put to sleep, I I knew I wasn't really going to be eating. But I thought that school would be canceled the next day because of the oncoming snowstorm. So I was like, Mm -hmm. I can live off this pizza. And we weren't canceled or even delayed at all. We were like the only school in this area that was not delayed. Wow. It was a pretty harrowing drive, but I made it. But now I am just eating all my pizza that I had (laughs) from that day. So I just want to go pick up a couple things. And tomorrow I kind of want to start. I like Narnia's uh, litter box is still there and her food. Oh, yeah. That's going to be a bummer. It is. It's going to be like hard to move that stuff. Yeah. But I do have stuff that I want to do here. So, you know, because there's there's Narnie proofing on some stuff that I didn't want her getting into. So now I can move it. But this place needs a deep clean. So that is going to be I'll probably enlist Corey and Miranda to help me over spring break. But I feel like that'll help, too. And then I can actually have people over because the apartment will be presentable. (laughs) Um, So I think that's it from us for today. Right. Yeah, I think that's it. So other, the only thing that's left is our poorly timed long distance stay strange, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But next time we'll be back together in person, unless there's another snowstorm. Right, you never you know. You don't know. Martian, I, Wisconsin, I have so. to remember to turn my clocks back. I don't want to yes. forget that. Yep. Uh, so Actually I think... Forward. You're turning them forward. No. Spring ahead. Yeah, I am turning it forward. Yep. Thank you. We're I would have been. We're gonna lose an hour. Oh, you would have been like. I would have been all messed. <laughs> I would have been all messed up. But then I'm always still early, so I probably would have ended up being just on time. So. So thank you guys so much for listening. Sorry, this was a Skype one. You know, I don't like these as much as the the face to face ones, but mm-hmm. sometimes it happens, and at least we can yep. do it like this. Yep. So thank Great. you so much for listening. Anything else you want to say, Krista? Nope, that's it. Thanks, everybody. Okay, thank you, everybody. Until next time, 
from our respective houses. Uh, this is from Krista and I. Until next time, stay, stay strange. strange. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye.